So we've been in the book of Revelation and starting kind of now in the Revelation chapter 2 here with the uh, the seven churches. And again, kind of the first chapter, you have the introduction and then you at the end of chapter 1, you have that vision of, of Jesus there among in his right hand. He has what does anybody remember? The seven stars and the seven stars represent the angels or the messengers. Uh, and then you have the lampstands, which are the seven churches. And so as Jesus is there in the midst of them, then you get the chapter 2 and 3, and you have this message where each one of these seven churches, Jesus gives this message to. And so we've been talking about them. And again, if you look at our, our map there, uh, there's Ephesus, which is the first one. And it really is the kind of the blue... The blue um, crosses are the seven churches, and, then there, and it's called a circular trade route. So when you came off the, the ship, you would get in the Ephesus there, and then you would go up to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, over to Laodicea, and it was just that kind of loop circular trade route. And how you would go as on that trade route is how these cities are ordered in the book of Revelation. So the first one is in Ephesus in, in verses 1 through 1 through 7. And so as Jesus is there, this message to the church in Ephesus, does anybody remember what Jesus tells them? They were they lost their first love. And basically what they were doing, Jesus said, You're doing all the right things. You're you're making sure that everything is as being like you're examining it you're testing it according to uh the truth of the gospel of jesus but you're forgetting and that's what uh understanding that you lost your first love and in other words you forgot yet the reason why you're doing this and that's your love for god and they were doing all the right things but they forgot why they were supposed to do them which was their love for god and so they, so that's what Jesus calls them out for and says, you know, repent, remember how you, who you were before Christ and how Christ saved you. And remember that, that joy and that excitement and what the things you did when you first came to know as a follower of Jesus to restore that love of God again. And then you, last week we looked at the second city of Smyrna. Again, it's, it was, it was kind of uh, just north of Ephesus, a popular uh, city, an important city. It was seen as the first city in this area of Asia Minor. And does anybody remember what the, what, it wasn't so much a criticism last week, but what Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, the Smyrnan church. You're going to be tribulation. You will have even more persecution. And that for 10 days, and that's not literally 10 days. That's one of the things that in Revelation, sometimes you have to ask yourself, you know, what can we take literally? What can we take figuratively? A lot of what is in the book of Revelation is more figurative. And so a lot of people will lean to the fact, you know, those, that 10 days just means a short time. You're already facing persecution. Again, the background of the book of Revelation, John is, is where? And the island of Patmos. Why is he in the island of Patmos? Because he's preaching Christ. They exiled him because of the gospel of Jesus. The Roman Empire at that time, does anybody remember? Domitian has a second wave of persecution. The first wave of persecution is under Nero. Domitian, the second wave of persecution to the believers. And this is uh, empire-wide. And so they're already facing persecution. And Jesus tells them, you know, 
to that you're facing even more persecution for a short time. And here's what he commands them to be. Do not be afraid, but be faithful. Remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus. And that's what, uh, and that's what they strive to do. And again, the, the, at, at the end of every one, they, there's this, um, um, promise. And the promise is, you know, that if you overcome, if you remain faithful, that you will get this crown of life. In other words, this eternal life, uh, referring to. And so every time we've been looking at these seven church letters, there's a basic outline and we'll continue. Uh, you'll, you'll, these, this outline will get driven, driven or driven into your brain, I guess, by the time we get to the end of chapter three, because we will walk through this every single one. And that, and there is a little variance. Like last week we saw the criticism of the church wasn't so much a criticism, but it was just saying, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future. So there are some of them are a little variants, of, but a majority of them do follow this. And so as we look at uh, verses 12 through 17, uh, we'll start off with uh, what is the what is the greeting there? Pergamum. Yep. So the city of Pergamum is the third city, and you can see that it's about anywhere between 35 to 40 miles north of Smyrna. So if you average walk person traveled, if you were going on a journey, would go anywhere between 15 to 20 miles a day. And so this would be, again, about a three-day journey from, uh, according to this map, which is blown up a lot, uh, it doesn't look that far, but it's uh, pretty good far up there. Pergamum, the interesting thing about this city is, is, is that it was a very religious city. It was not a good religious city, though. It was a very educational city. A lot of times when you think of the first century, uh, you, you think of educational cities, cities that are, well, in America, you think of educational cities, a lot of times they used to be thinking of like Boston with Harvard University or Providence with like Brown uh, University and so forth. Uh, sometimes now it's more like, um, I don't even know what are the top universities anymore for education. Well, Penn State, uh, yeah, for certain things now. But uh, you you have uh, different kind of areas that are known as like the think tank of, of the United States. In this area, Pergamon was that kind of think tank of Asia Minor. In the first century, you kind of had two places, Alexandria, which is down by Egypt, Pergamon, uh, which is around here. Uh, and, and the reason why they know this, because archaeologists have found uh, evidence of these massive libraries. In Pergamon, they found this library that they, they can kind of uh, put together that has somewhere between 200,000 works of literature. In fact, Pergamon, Pergamon, you know, people that lived in Pergamon, who knows Pergamonians or whatever they're called, uh, people that lived in Pergamon, uh, in ancient time, in the BC time, they kind of invented, uh, tradition tells us that they invented what is called the parchment process of where they would write on animal skins and, and so forth that happened in Pergamon. So this is much like a, a, a think tank of, of Asia Minor. But it was also a religious area where they have some very big temples and they worship Zeus, 
And who was Zeus? He was a, he was a Greek god that they worshipped, or, or Roman god, um, uh, mythology type deal. Yes, there you go. That's it. They worship the same thing. In fact, here is uh, some artist rendition of what the temple of Zeus would look like. This is what a modern day uh, of coming to ruins. And so, I mean, this thing was massive. And if you see how massive it is, they actually, archaeologists have actually taken it to, I believe, the, in, um, in Berlin at one of the museums. And that is part of the temple of Zeus that was in Pergamon. And you can see in relation to the people just how massive this is. Not only was it a location to worship Zeus and, and what, did you, what was the other one? Athena. They also was the one city that, that was the, if you want to say the thing, the city or the people that, that worshiped Caesar like never before. In fact, it was also here in Pergamum that was the first temple uh, built uh, for Caesar so that people could come and worship him. And so again, this was a very, again, educational city, a religious city in the sense of pagan city, and, and what they worship. If you go to Pergamon nowadays, this is what, again, the remnants of the temple of, of Zeus there. Uh, and so it was, again, you, you think about this and we think about what, what's going to happen here when we read this. And in fact, let me read that now before we get too far. Uh, kind of as Jesus is there and as Jesus is giving this message, this is the background that these believers are living in. And so let me read uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse, verse 12 there. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and you remain true to my name. You did not renounce, depending on the way you take it, you could say you did not renounce your faith in me, or you did not renounce my faithfulness, referring to God's faithfulness. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the, the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. But if not, then I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on him known only to the one who receives it. But again, you think of the city of Pergamon, you think of this, this idolatry, this paganism, and every time when you think of worshiping idols, worshiping Zeus, worshiping um, Caesar, uh, there's all this paganism that gets wrapped around and we'll kind of work through this. 
But as you start in the greeting, there's the second thing that we always see is a title from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. So in this letter, what is that title from the vision of chapter 1 there in in this letter there in your Bibles? Sharp, double-edged sword. You turn back, if someone could read chapter 1, verse 16. A little bit different in chapter 2. It doesn't talk about it coming out of his mouth, but again is always right referring back to chapter 1. And so the double-edged sword in other places in the New Testament, what is it talking about? The double-edged sword, the, the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, right? And so when Jesus has this sharp double-edged sword coming out of His mouth, he's not again, it's not saying, hey, uh, let's draw Jesus and He's walking around with the sword coming out of His mouth. Um, but it is that understanding that He speaks the truth. That he's going, and, and why does Pergamon need to know that Jesus is going to speak the truth to them? Because they need to hear. Why do they need to hear? They're worshippers of Satan. They're, 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 and there's some people within the church, within the believers there in Pergamon, that are actually, as we'll find out, are actually going along and being led astray from the lies of these of this pagan stuff. And so Jesus says, you know, to the church in, in Pergamum, uh, there's a double-edged sword here. I'm going to speak the truth. And then the next one in ver- number three is the I know section. And what are some things that Jesus says here in verse 13? That's Jesus says, I know what? Where you live. Which is interesting that Jesus puts off on that because, again, he understands why Jesus says these I know is he's saying, listen, I, I understand what's going on there. Through Smyrna, I understand you're being persecuted. To Ephesus, I understand that you're standing for the truth. And so he understands that you live in this town and he calls it what? Satan's throne or the throne of Satan. Why does Jesus call Pergamon the throne of Satan? False worshippers. All the false worshippers. They can either go from, I mean, you can pick your, pick, pick the one you want. The temple of Zeus, or the the other temple, or the temple for Caesar. I mean, there any type of idol worship. I mean, and that's what sometimes in in our we we have to think about this is that there's only two options. You either have either is is pleasing to God, or it's the other option, which is of displeasing God, which is of Satan. There was a someone one time who was uh, came to me and talked, told me and said, uh, asked me this question: Do you think my house can be haunted? I said, probably. What's going on? And so every once in a while, the doors will fly open, they or the covers will fly open, things and, and some weird things will happen. And I said, well, that does sound like something, something's going on there. They said, well, you th-, and they said, well, what's your? Do you think it's? Uh, do you think it's? Is this good or bad? I said, well, that's the question you have to ask yourself because there are only two options. It's either good from God or as bad as from Satan. There's no middle of the road. And so after spiritual conversation, we figured out that you know, it probably wasn't of God and, um, and we uh, uh, prayed that it would leave and it left. Um, so it's just, again, there's only two options. There's no middle road. And so... As you think about all this paganism, and, and Jesus is saying, you know, where you live, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's Satan's living there. 
But yet, what happens? They still hold fast to Jesus' name. And that word hold is, you'll hear that several times this, uh, through this letter. You will, you're holding fast. You're remaining. You're, even in spite of all this wickedness around you, you're continuing to follow after me. Not only that, the, the other one had been, depending on how your translation, how, how the translators will translate it, is either you do not deny Jesus' faithfulness, referring to the fact you know that Jesus is faithful, or as the NIVs uh, will take it here, that you do not renounce your faith in me. In other words, you don't disown the fact that you are my followers. And then, after that, well, then, oh, sorry, and then it talks about this guy. In the days of Antipas, no one knows. They knew, first century, who Jesus was referring to. We historically have no clue who this guy Antipas was. All we know is, is what happened to this guy. He was martyred, and he was a faithful martyr. You know, when we think of that word martyr, we think of somebody that dies for Christ. Because that's how, from the third century on, that's how it's, how it's used. But in the first century, a martyr, that was just a Greek word for witness. So when Jesus says in, Romans, in, in Acts chapter 1, you know, you will be my witnesses, that's actually the word martyr. But Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to die for me, and eventually they will. But that's not, that just means that team witness. And so here this guy dies as that faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And again, we have no idea what exactly happened, but we know he dies there in Pergma. And again, Jesus says in Pergma, where who lives? Where Satan lives. I mean, this is not a town you want to be around. The wicked and evilness that is going on. Exactly. And so he was a real guy. But again, we don't know any more detail than that, that he was a real guy that died because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And again, that was common in this time right now because, because understanding this, this under, if you had to say Caesar is Lord, that was part of worshiping Caesar. That Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is my master. And as believers in Jesus Christ, there's only one Lord. Who's supposed to be the Lord of our lives? Of Jesus. And so what happened is this. Is when the Christians got to the point when they, they started forcing people to worship Caesar and, see, and, and believers are like, no, we're not worshiping Caesar because Caesar isn't my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Caesar is my governor, but he's not my Lord. And it, because this worship of Caesar became equal with patri being patriots for the Roman Empire, they were seen as saying, listen, if you're not going to worship Caesar, then you must be bad citizens, so we're going to kill you because you may overthrow us. And that's kind of how that, how that all worked. So the criticism, number four. According to Jesus, starting in verse 14, what are some things that Jesus says, this is what I have against you? Yep. But what does uh, verse 14 say? A Balaam. So there's... Yeah. Yeah. Same as Balaam. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Exactly. So, he, 
And here's the second time we hear this word holding to. Same word. So Jesus says, you know, you're holding firm. You're remaining true to, to My name. But this is what I have against you. Some of you are actually holding firmly to the teachings of Balaam. And then He goes on and explains who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed to sexual immorality. So Balaam. Now why do we why do we remember Balaam so much? What happened to Balaam's donkey? And talk. That's that's usually why we remember Balaam. It's like, oh yeah, he's the guy that had the talking donkey. Like like Mr. Ed. Uh, television show type deal. He and if you remember, you go back to Numbers, Numbers chapter 22, 20 through twenty-four is this scene. Is the na- nation of Israel the, n- the book of Numbers? So you have Genesis that gets us up to the time uh, Joseph uh, passes away. Exodus gets us into um, Moses and the Exodus and down to Mount Sinai, uh, uh, and then Numbers is all about the reason why they call it Numbers. Does anybody know why they call it Numbers? It's a census. Beginning part has a has a census. The ending has a census. And in between all those censuses is how many years? Forty years. Because at the beginning of the book of Numbers is one generation. At the end of the book of Numbers is another generation. And it was forty years of wilderness wanderings. And so you have this scene where at the end of the forty years they're heading towards the promised land on the plains of Moab. And the king, uh, Balak, uh, he doesn't he doesn't like the nation of Israel. He wants them to be cursed. And so he hires this guy by the name of Balaam to go and curse the nation of Israel for him. Well, Balaam's like, well, let me see. So three times his donkey runs him off the road. And then finally God opens, allows the donkey to open his mouth and says, don't you realize that I'm trying to save your life? And basically, it was God's way to get Balaam's attention and say, you don't say anything against my people. You are to bless them, not curse them. And so initially, that's what Balaam does. At the end of uh, 23 and 24, three different times, Balaam goes up on the mountain. The king Balak wants, is going to say, okay, curse them. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And the third time, he again, three times, he blesses them. And then you have this scene in 25 where Balaam seems to say to him, listen, I can't, I can't say anything except for bless them, but if you want to know how to get rid of the nation of Israel on your doorsteps, you cause them to sin and God will wipe them out pretty much. And so that's what happens in, in Numbers 25. Let me read... If you want to turn there, you can. If you want to follow along, you can just uh, listen to as I as I read. Sorry, he does four times. Four messages. I was off by one. Four messages of of blessing. Well, actually, he does seven times. I was off by a number of them. Sorry about that. Three long times, and then then uh, four short times of him um, blessing him. So. Chapter 25, while Israel was staying there in Smitten, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. And usually what happens with sacrifices, especially with pagan gods, 
is it just doesn't involve sacrifices. It also involves sexual immorality that go along with that. The people ate the sacrificial meat, bowed down before the, these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in the broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Yoke meaning who, who started worshiping. Same, same language that Paul talks about how believers should not be yoked with unbelievers. Verse 6, And an Israelite man brought into camp a Midianite woman right before their eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting which is the tabernacle. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite into the tent, and drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites were stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered how many people? 24,000. 24, I mean, and again, some people will look at this and be like, Really? Like, what in the world is God doing? Because God's teaching his, the, his, the nation of Israel, you better take sin seriously and you better walk in obedience to me. That was the point of all this. That I am a holy God. You're supposed to be a holy people. I do not want you to intermarry with these pagan countries. I do not want you to worship their false gods. You are to be holy and worship me alone. And then we get to, if someone could read Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we find a very interesting tidbit in that verse. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. So Moses is here. He gives the, their, they went to battle. They're bringing back the spoils. And, and Moses says, no, you are not to keep them, these, these women, because this, they were the ones that led the nation of Israel away that this plague that we read about in, in 25 broke out. And whose advice was given to do this? Balaam. In fact, if you jump up to verse 8, of, sorry, in verse 7 of 31, they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evie, uh Rickham, Zer, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian, they also killed who? Balaam, son of Eor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children, took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. And that's when Moses says, listen, these women were the exact same ones. You need to get rid of them. And so, jumping back to Revelation, the criticism that Jesus has with this church in Pergamon is, is, is listen, you have people within the believers of Jesus that are hanging on to, that are following the teachings of Balaam. They're going to these altars. They're going to these temples. They're having sexual immorality. And they're eating food that's been sacrificed. And, and usually that means they're going to these temples and participating in these sacrifices to these pagan gods, these false gods. The other thing that's going on in Revelation is not only are they holding to the teachings of Balaam, but they're holding to the teachings of whom? Nicolaitans. 
Now, this is the second time we've seen this, the Nicolaitans. The first time we, we saw it was back in verse 6 of chapter 2. This is a cult we don't really know, or a sect that we don't really know exactly what's happening because the only time we ever hear this group of false believers in, in history is right here in the book of Revelation. And basically the, the, the assumption is because they're connected with Balaam and they're connected with Jezebel, which we'll see that here in another letter, is that it has something to do with idol worship. It has something to do with, of course, the sexual immorality and so forth, which is going to these temples and, and worshiping these idols and false gods. And more than likely what was happening is the Nicolaitans were a group of people that followed a guy by Nicol Nicolaitia or, Nicola or Nicolaitian or, or someone like that, Nick, Nick that we'll call him, uh, who, who then was like, you know what? You know, you have the gospel of Jesus, but it's okay to, to also on the side to maybe worship, you know, Caesar, or maybe it's okay to do that. And, and that's why, you know, it's, again, that idol worship that's going on, that compromising. And so you have those two things. And again, it's the same thing. Jesus says, you're hanging on, you're remaining to, you're steadfast to believe in my, in, my, uh, in my name. But then you also have people that are believers in this town that are hanging on to Balaam's teaching and the Nicolaitans' teaching and that are thinking it's okay to go to these temples and to worship these false gods and these idols and to eat meat that's sacrificed to their, and, to, and to go through the sexual immorality that is in those temples with the uh, temple prostitutes and so forth. So that's the criticism. Number five, what's the warning that Jesus gives to this church? Repent. Repent. Understand that you're heading in the wrong direction. Admit that before God that you are not walking in obedience to God and turn and start walking in obedience to God. Repent. And then what also does Jesus say? I will come against you soon. Literally, I will wage war wage war against you. And again, there's a reason why that vision of Jesus having that double-edged sword is now is, I'm going to come and I'm going to show you the truth. And you're bought into this lie. And I will, in a sense, wipe you out. Number six, what is that exhortation? Number seven, every single one of these, and again, these are messages that are written that Jesus has written specifically to these churches in this specific context. But when, but I think the reason why all seven of them are included is that whenever you can see that, listen, pay attention to these messages because don't get yourself in the same situation. Learn from them. Same thing that Paul says about the Old Testament. The reason why things happen to the nation of Israel is for us to, as believers, to learn from them so that we don't follow the same errors. That's one of the problems nowadays with, with our culture of not learning history. How do, we under, how do we know that slavery is wrong and that we should never repeat these things? How do we know, how do we know if, if, if we're never taught about the Holocaust and the evil of, of Hitler, like, then realize this, how bad that was? Like, we could repeat that again. But... We got to pay attention, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't follow 
their same mistakes. Pay attention to what the Spirit says so you can learn from them. And then, of course, what's that, that promise that Jesus gives them? There's two promises here. Hidden manna and the white stone that has what written on it? A new name. Interesting, those two things. There is like probably ten ways you could take those two things. Because nobody really knows. But generally speaking, if you, if you look at kind of what Jesus says to all the churches, is that when you look at, you know, those, that person who overcomes or that person who is victorious or that person who prevails, in other words, the person who makes it to the end in their relationship and their commitment and remain with Jesus Christ is over and over again, God promises them eternal life. And so this understanding of hidden manna and really is symbolic of, 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 to me, the most one that makes sense is that the marriage supper of the Lamb, that they will be there in that, that time when, when Jesus comes back at the end of the book of Revelation. You think of manna, you think of, uh, what, well, what, where's manna in the Bible? The wilderness, 40 years, where God provides for his people. And again, that, that, that hidden manna, sometimes people will say what, what it refers to is, um, and again, we don't know, really know, this is just kind of Jewish um, tradition, that when, when the temple was going to be destroyed uh, the first time, and, and Jeremiah was there, that God told Jeremiah to go through the Ark of Covenant, to take the thing out of, of manna, and go hide it. And again, that's Jewish tradition, not biblical, but that's Jewish tradition. So that's why... Some people will point to this as that. They'll be like, oh, this is that manna that Jeremiah had. Who knows? All we know is that it has something to do with this eternal life. That they will have this white stone. Same thing. There's, there's 10 million ways you could take this. And the, some people will argue, well, the gladiators got a stone when they, they were released from fighting in, in the Colosseum or the or or in or in in um, when they were put on trial uh, they would write on stones if the person was acquitted uh, or, or guilty and they would then hide they would then put it and then uh, they would read it and so forth again who knows but all we do know is that the one who is victorious when you look through every single one of these letters is the symbolism points to that they will be with God for eternity. That they will be that overcomer. They will be that victorious. That they will have that new name that, in a real sense, Jesus is saying, you're mine. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to adopt you into my family. And that's what it means. But again, some you can have 10 million... What it basically is, there's ten, 10 ways you can take this, but there's really only like one meaning, if you want to say, um, with that. Pointing to that eternity that they will spend if they make it victorious, they make it to that end. As we go through, as we went through this, and as uh, it really comes down to, to this, when you think about how does this apply to our, our lives, you know, we need to be careful that we do not compromise with our culture. Because that's what was the believers in Pergamum were doing. They lived in a pagan culture where Jesus says that's the throne of Satan. 
there's idol worshipers, there's this paganism like never before, and they were compromising and they were they were having their culture influence them instead of the other way where Jesus says we are to be the we are to influence our culture, not our culture influence us. Jesus says that we are are what the we as believers we are the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. Salt. What's the purpose of salt? Season. Preserve. Before before refrigeration, how would they keep the meat? They salted it. Because even nowadays, if you uh, uh, use Epsom salt sometimes in the bath, and it can uh, have times of like taking out um, bacteria and stuff. That's the understanding when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are to, you are, my believers are supposed to slow down the decay and sin of this world. You are the light on the hill, a city on the hill. You're like the lighthouse. Warning people, there's danger coming. That is guiding. And again, there are some of the cities were built on the hill so that as people were walking at nighttime, they could see it and they could find their way. So that's what you're supposed to be as my followers. You're not supposed to have this world influence you. You're supposed to influence it by how you live. But so many times, aren't we just like the believers in Pergamum? We compromise. You see, Pergamum, the throne of Satan, was called the throne of Satan because they worship idols and false gods. In America, what's the number one god that people worship? Money. Success. Materialism. In fact, this is dictionary.com. If you want to know the definition of materialism, this is it. According to dictionary.com, a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. I mean, that's, that's our culture in a nutshell. If not, then why in the world would people camp out for three days to get the latest iPhone or or whatever? But <laughs> Black Friday, that was used to be the joke. Nowadays, it's it's not so much. COVID kind of changed that, and I think that was for the good. COVID changed that, but it was interesting before COVID. You think about that, people would camp out on. Thanksgiving, sometimes the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, have their Thanksgiving meal in the parking lot of Best Buy or whatever, and then camp out, and then all of a sudden be like, hey, it's Black Friday shopping, and let's go busting into these doors. Margaret's brother worked for Staples. Uh, and when we were first married, her parents lived in Tennessee. We would go down for Thanksgiving. The whole family would go down to Thanksgiving. We would eat the eat Thanksgiving meal, and then the as the uh, this was just what happened. Uh, the 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 ladies would always end up somewhere in the in the kitchen cleaning it up, and the guys would be looking through Staples uh, um, shopper's guide. And her brother would be there, and the other brother would say, "So his name was Ben. So Ben, what's what's why do you have some good deals for Staples?" And uh, he would be like, oh, this, and that, at that point in time was GPSs. And so if you remember those G- before cell phones, you had GPSs uh, that you could get traffic and so forth. And one year they had one that was like half off Black Friday. But he said, you got to get there early. 
or I'll save one for you because they I didn't realize Staples rigged up they they only gave a little limited supply of those things to their stores to get people into the stores early and so they they he did put one behind behind the counter for the other brother which was interesting I was like oh, hopefully you don't lose your job over that but uh, <laughs> but that was the big deal and and he and we would talk to him the next day and be like well how's Black Friday it was busy did anybody get hurt because that was the other big thing so people would open the doors and they would get crushed by the mob people have died in Walmarts because of that and it's all because of this materialism Physical comfort. We, uh, our vehicles, we drive them because we, they may not be the most comfortable, but they at least will last uh, in the sense of engine wise. And it's funny, there's the previous. That's one of the, our, we got the, our Honda Accord. That's like, that was, that was the number one worst reviews. Their seats are hard. And I was like, oh, that's, I could have lived with a hard seat if I know my engine's going to last for 200,000 miles. So I guess, but, it's interesting because like Lucas is asking, well, why does, why, like, what's the difference between this vehicle and that vehicle? And I said, buddy, it just depends on what you want. Certain car companies, it's all about the extra features like heated steering wheels and, and things like that. Or your car can talk to you. I said, it just depends. And it's interesting when you come down to that, and then some of them are safety featured, but a lot of them are just that physical comfort, that luxurious feeling of driving down the road. But isn't, but the interesting thing is this, is when you think about materialism in our culture, how does that, doesn't that affect even our churches? It does. We visited a church, and I won't tell you the name of the church, because we visited a church, and the pastor was preaching, and I noticed as he's reading the as he and the, and the verse is right there on the screen. As he's reading the Bible verse, he skips over the word sin, and I thought, hmm. First time I didn't take any notes. I thought, oh, maybe he just like misread it. Second time, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Third time, thinking, oh, that that's on purpose. And it was a it was a mega church, had thousands of people coming, and I was just like. Hmm. And then you look, at, and then I that that caused me to listen to his sermon a little bit more, and I was thinking, oh, this is this is a feel good sermon, because again, it's that personal comfort that's influenced our mentality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Same reason why in America, if we suffer for Jesus, we think something must be wrong, because it's that personal comfort. And again, we have to go back to that. We cannot, we have to be careful that we do not compromise the gospel of Jesus with our culture. And there's other examples we can use, you know, uh, gay marriage and, and how people twist the scriptures with a bunch of stuff. But the message that Jesus is giving the Pergma is this. Remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Even in the midst of this crazy pagan world do not participate in it yes they may look like you've lost your brain that you have two heads that they're like old old-fashioned 
like, how dare you do that? You may be persecuted, which, uh, you know, Jesus says that's going to happen. Remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Do not compromise that. 